0: Turn with me to John 16. John chapter 16. We're looking at verses uh, 16 through 22 and considering how sorrow is turned into joy. John 16. Verse 16, give attention to God's holy word. A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father they said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy." A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your word written. We also thank you for your word preached. We ask that you would pour out your spirit upon this time of preaching, that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. And we pray this all for his sake. Amen. Many of you are probably aware that if you want to be wealthy, you have to go. To the wealthy and learn what they did. If you want to be healthy, you go to the healthy and find out what they did to become healthy. But what about joy? Joy is one of those things in this life that whether we are wealthy or healthy, wealth and health go away. Wealth and health don't last forever. With death and sin, sorrow and sadness, with all that we see around us, what is the source of joy? It can't be our own emotions, because if you're like me, your emotions change with the weather. Furthermore, our emotions are too easily stimulated by music or substances. I and am not very joyful before I've had my caffeine. It can't be our circumstances, whether we're wealthy or healthy, for riches find themselves wings and fly away, and this body is decaying day by day, as we read in Psalm 90. If by reason of, reason of strength, maybe it's 80 years, but all those years are labor and sorrow. Everywhere we look around us, there's nothing but death and decay, and so where does joy for the Christian come from? Perhaps even more to the point, where can my sorrowful heart find joy? It might be one thing if we're in decent circumstances and our heart is maybe in a neutral place, neither sorrowful nor joyful to talk about how can I find joy. But an even more pointed question, and the question that's being put to the disciples here, how can a heart that is burdened with sorrow, how can a heart that is saturated with the bitter herbs of this life find joy? It is often the lot of Christians to have a heart full of sorrow. And that's for one primary reason. Christians are alive from the dead. And when you're alive, things hurt. When you're dead, things don't hurt. And so it is often the lot of the Christian to have a heart full of sorrow. Psalm 88 is a great example of this. And so how is our sorrow turned into joy? Well, this passage is going to teach us. This passage shows us how that happens. Specifically, the sorrows of the Christian are turned into joy through resurrection. The sorrows of the Christian are turned into joy through resurrection. We're going to see two things in this passage. First, Verses 16 through 19, the irrationality of resurrection. Verses 16 through 19 is the irrationality of resurrection. And verses 20 through 22, the irresistibility of resurrection. The irrationality of the resurrection and the irresistibility of the resurrection. So we begin in verses 16 through 19 with the irrationality of the resurrection. Now, what do I mean by irrationality? I mean that the resurrection, as we're going to see in this passage, is not something we would have figured out. The resurrection is something that is beyond our understanding. Nobody would have thought of this. And we're going to see that in the example of the disciples. Christ, in verse 16 speaks of his departure once again. He says, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see, again you will see me, because I go to the Father. Now, in, in the context of the Upper Room Discourse, John 14, 1, up to this point, this is the tenth time, by my count, that he has referred to his departure. It's the tenth time he's brought this up. Obviously, we know that he's speaking about his own death. A little while, and you will not see me. He's speaking about his death. While the cross was the most shameful, painful, and horrific form of death, it was also a bitter separation of friends. Remember that the disciples, they were believers. They they did believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they also loved him as a friend. Christ says in John 15, I no longer call you servants, but I have called you friends. To the degree that the disciples loved Jesus, to that degree, the cross would hurt them also. You remember when Christ was circumcised at the temple and they brought the offering uh, when he was a baby. And old Simeon takes up Christ and says, thank you, Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace for now my eyes have seen your salvation. And then he says to Mary, a, heart is going, a sword is going to pierce your heart also. Because Simeon understood what this baby was going to do. So to the degree that they loved Christ, the cross was also painful for them. Because Christ was being taken away from them through death. You remember the story of David and Absalom. There's a rebellion going on. Absalom gets killed. And David is undone in his sorrow for his son, whom he loved. He goes about the streets crying, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son. Because he was taken away from him through death. It's not only the pain that they're going to experience at seeing their their friend up on the cross. It's also what he says in verse 16. Look Look at how he puts this. A little while... And you will not see me. The greatest sorrow would be that they would no longer see him. As they say, the eyes are the window to the soul. The body is how the soul expresses itself. And probably one of the greatest pains when a loved one dies is we realize The body is not moving anymore. Almost immediately, the temperature leaves the body. The fire of the spirit is gone. The skin begins to get cold. The eyes glaze over. And it's evident they're not here anymore. You will not see me. In our death and burial practices, there's an illustration of this sorrow and how hard it is to part when death parts us. The loved one is there. The loved one may be dying in a hospital bed. And the efforts of the family are to get there before they leave, before they depart. Because once they depart, there's no coming back, there's no reversal. Once he dies, I will no longer see him. And the difficulty of letting go is expressed sometimes when we have an open casket one last chance to see that loved one who is now departed before they are buried and I see them no more. There's a very important reminder here about death. Death is not what we were made for. Death is so painful to us because it is so unnatural to us. God made you and I to be eternal, undying beings. And the pain of death shows us how unnatural it is. Even though this is not what we were made for, even though this was not God's intent in the original creation, death is a universal experience. All men die. And if any of you have lost loved ones, you know that when we lose a loved one, A part of our souls go with them. A part that can never be brought back because they are gone. The Romans gave expression to this when they talked about friendship. If you had a very close friend in Rome, they would say that he is your alter ego, meaning he's another self. He's another one of you because you are such close friends. So when loved ones part, it is painful. He speaks of his departure through the death, through his death on the cross, but he also speaks of his presence. Look at what he says. A little while and you will not see me. That's the cross. And again a little while and you will see me. Christ here is referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit. In this upper room discourse, he's spoken about his departure 10 times. He's spoken about the gift of the Spirit six times up to this point. And so in this whole passage, there's an interplay between I'm going away, but the Spirit will come. I'm going away, the Spirit will come, I will not leave you orphans. When I depart, the Helper will come, and he will exalt me. A little while and you will not see me. Again a little while, and you will see me. The Holy Spirit brings Christ to us by working faith in our hearts the Holy Spirit brings Christ to us by working faith in our hearts therefore the second part of verse 16 is speaking about the sight of faith he's not speaking about physical sight that's the first one a little while you won't see me anymore with your eyes again a little while you will see me by faith one other thing to keep in mind The Holy Spirit is poured out only after the resurrection. The Holy Spirit is the great gift of Christ's victory. After the resurrection and the ascension and his seating at the right hand of God on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is then poured out in its fullness. So for Christ to say, you will no longer see me, but then again you will see me, he's speaking about a post-resurrection reality. He says that it is by the Holy Spirit that we see him. Just one example of this, John 14, uh, 19 through 24. We won't read the entire section there, but the language is very similar, isn't it? Verse 19, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. How's that going to happen, Jesus? We'll keep reading. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, asks him, how will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? The disciples are confused. How can we see you, but they can't see you? How are you going to manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? Keep reading. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and we will come to Him, and we will make our home with Him. Christ is describing the means of the Spirit, the Word by which the disciples will see Him. For the Word to be effective, there has to be faith in the heart. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives faith in the heart, in the Word, so that, as we saw this morning, the things that are hoped for become real for our souls. By the work of the Spirit, and by faith and so it's by the spirit that we see him there's there's one extremely important just application at this point for all of us you can know nothing of Christ except by the Holy Spirit you cannot know Christ without the Holy Spirit therefore pray for the spirit ask your heavenly father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Isn't it interesting, that the parables that Christ uses to illustrate this. He uses the example of a father and a son. And many of you are fathers. Some of you are soon to be fathers. And when you have little kids, one of the most common requests you get from your kids is, can I have a cookie? Can I have an apple? Can I have an ice cream? Can I have a juice box? Can I have some milk? Give me something to eat. And Christ says, if you give them good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? When we come to him and say, Daddy, can I have more spirit? Daddy, can I have another spirit? Daddy, can I have another spirit? And Christ says, of course he will, abundantly, freely. You can never have too much Holy Spirit. You can't have too many cookies. But you can never have too much Holy Spirit. And so the Father loves to give this to those who ask him. Ask him, and he will pour it out and you will see more of Christ. You will understand Christ more. Christ will be closer to you than you realized that he could. Well, returning to to verse 16, uh, you will not see me, and again, you will see me. And then he says, because I go to the Father. This is a reference to the resurrection. It's really a, a reference to his entire exaltation Christ's ministry has two phases the humiliation and the exaltation. The humiliation culminates in his burial in the tomb. That was the bottom of his sufferings. His exaltation begins with the resurrection from the dead and then the ascension and being seated at the right hand of the Father. So when he says, I'm going to the Father, he's referring to that ascension which begins with the resurrection. But at this point, obviously, the disciples are confused. They, they really don't know what Christ is talking about. And we see the confusion in verse 17. Then some of the disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. And they said, therefore, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Be reminded, brothers and sisters, the things of the gospel are foolish to the wisdom of the world. The gospel of the Lord Jesus is foolishness in the eyes of the world. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 10. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 10. Paul writes about his ministry of preaching the gospel, and he says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. A little while you will not see me, and a little while you will see me, because I go to the Father. What is this mystery? We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom of God, uh, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As it is written, Eye has not seen, ear has not erred, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which he has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. The things of the gospel are foolishness in the eyes of the world. They are, we might say, Irrational, according to the wisdom of the world, and so the disciples are confused. They don't understand what's going on. And Christ uh, uh, begin uh, again in verse uh, eighteen. They're confused. Verse eighteen. They say, "We do not know what he is saying." another application at this point when they say we don't know the the word that they use is a word that indicates um your perception of things you know i'm not colorblind i'm thankful for that but some are colorblind and if you're if you're colorblind you can't perceive the difference between different colors that's the way they're using this word you don't know the difference between different shades of blue or, or whatever the, the um, colorblind can't perceive. Now, one of the things you do know about me is I'm mildly tone deaf. So I can't perceive the difference when I'm off key or when I'm accidentally on key. I don't know the difference. That's the word that they're saying here. They're saying that we can't perceive what he is talking about. In our own understanding, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what he's saying. Another application, very helpful for us. Proverbs 3 5 through 7 says, Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge the Lord, and he will direct your paths. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. It is often when we make the biggest mistakes that we have been trusting in our own understanding, trying to rationalize the things of the gospel. That's what the disciples are doing here. What's going on? We don't understand this. We have no idea what's happening, and they're confused. Secondly, notice, until their confusion is cleared up, they're not going to experience the joy that Christ is talking about. They're not going to enjoy the blessing. So Christ offers to clear things up. Look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. He said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Notice he uses this phrase, inquiring among yourselves. Are you pooling your ignorance to try and understand what I'm saying? Are you asking other As far as this goes, blind disciples who have no idea what I'm talking about. You know, Martin Luther once said that he learned more about the scriptures after a half hour of prayer than he did after half a day of study. To inquire among ourselves in this sense means to trust in human understanding. Isn't this how we're tempted? You ever reading a passage of the Bible? And you're like, man, I don't understand this. What do the commentators say? What do the theologians say? What does this other commentary say? And we start bouncing around to all these commentaries. Now, that can be good if it's used in a good manner. It can also be confusing if it's used in a confusing manner, the way the disciples are using it. They're inquiring among themselves. They don't understand This is the danger of relying too much on commentaries and the exegetical notes in your Bibles. I know it's very tempting. You read a passage, you don't know what it means, and then you immediately go down to the commentary notes. That can be a danger because man doesn't understand the Bible. Jesus understands the Bible. So ask him. Don't inquire amongst yourselves. Inquire of Christ. What did you mean by this? In prayer, and He will give you understanding. Ask Him, and not yourselves. Well, we see in this uh, this opening passage, sixteen through nineteen, the irrationality of the resurrection. Christ makes this statement to them; they're totally confused by it. They don't understand this according to their own understanding. But then we find the irresistibility. Of resurrection. Notice first off, as Christ clears these things up, he, he, they don't understand what's going on. Well, Christ has to clear things up. He says in verse 20, most assuredly, King James has truly, truly, uh, most assuredly, I say to you, this phrase is repeated to show the absolute truth of what is about to be taught. Christ is about to teach them something that they cannot perceive. And he's saying, pay attention to this, because this is the absolute truth. Notice the first thing that he says. I say to you that you will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. You will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. Death is a real loss. It produces real Sorrow. It doesn't produce superficial sorrow. It doesn't produce a temporary sorrow. It produces a real deep sorrow. Think about Exodus chapter 12 29 through 30. When the plague of the death of the firstborn comes upon Egypt, the death angel comes to Egypt and it says that all the firstborn in the land of Egypt died from Pharaoh all the way down to the prisoner in the dungeon. All the firstborn died. And then when all the parents woke up, such a cry went through the land of Egypt because of all the death that had come across the land of Egypt. It says a great cry went up. I can't imagine what that was like. The entire kingdom howling with the tears of parents holding their dead children. Consider also Jeremiah 31.15. Jeremiah prophesies about the coming of Christ and he says, I heard a voice weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are not. Death is a real loss and it produces real sorrow. That's what Christ is speaking about. You will weep because I'm really going to die. Not only are they going to weep, but the world is going to rejoice. In the death of Christ, Satan thought he'd won, and the world danced. Remember, the world are those who hate Christ, John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Can you imagine this cruel mockery? Not only is your, your best friend being killed in front of your eyes, but those who killed him are rejoicing over it. You will weep, but the world will rejoice. Your heart will be filled with sorrow. But notice what he says next. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. If the curse of God's Word is found to be true, then the promise of God's Word is found to be true as well. When we experience the sorrow of the curse, by the way, the sadness of death is experiencing the curse in your own life. When the curse is experienced and we find it to be true, The promise is just as true as the curse. Consider some things here. The curse of God's word upon man's sin was death. From the dust you are and to the dust you shall return. Christ came to fulfill all of God's word, including the curse. And so as he says, you are going to weep and lament, you are going to be sorrowful, Because I am really going to die. But the promise of God's word is that he will bring life out of death. Consider what he said to the woman and the serpent. He said to the serpent, The seed of the woman shall bruise your head, uh, shall bruise the head of the serpent. And he said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, and in sorrow you shall bring forth children. I will cause you to feel the weight of the curse in your own body. And yet, when you feel death, I will bring children out of that. I will bring life out of death. Turn with me to Genesis 35, verse 18. Genesis 35, verse 18. This is one of my favorite verses in all of the book of Genesis. Because this story, Genesis thirty-five eighteen, highlights the point I'm trying to, to get into your minds. This, of course, is the death of Rachel. But notice how Rachel dies, verse 16. Rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor. Came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. So it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. Ben-Oni means son of my misfortune, son of my sorrow. Benjamin means son of my good fortune, son of my joy. And so as Rachel is dying and she's feeling the curse in her own body, she says, son of my sorrow. Jacob looks at it by faith and says, God's word is true because I see my wife dying, son of my good fortune. Son of my joy. God is going to fulfill his word. God will bring life out of death. Christ uses this illustration then to make his point clear. Look at what he says in John 16. John 16 Verse 21, Christ uses this illustration from Genesis 3.16 and all human experience to a greater or lesser degree. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. Notice that. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. The first part of his comparison is equating labor pains and death. That's the the connection that Christ is making here. Labor pains with death. Those of you that have given birth or those of you that have witnessed a birth will know that in the birth of an eternal soul, the woman is brought to the edge of her life. The woman is brought to the edge of the grave as she's going through the labor pains As she gives her life to bring forth this new life, in the pain and the sorrow and the travail and the uncertainty, at some point she has to give up hope of her survival for the sake of the life of that child. Now, it may not always result in actual death of the mother, but sometimes it sure does feel like it, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels like, I don't know what's going to happen, but this baby needs to be born, and I will do whatever it takes for this child to be born. Labor pains and death are contrasted with birth and resurrection. Look at what he says. Look at the comparison. When the child is born, however, what a change comes upon the mother. As soon as the child has come born, all the pain, all the sweat, all the cries, all the fears, the black clouds of doubt and anxiety are removed in an instant because there's a new baby in the world. There's a new life that has just been born. All of the fear and terror is replaced by joy and rejoicing almost in an instant. A new life has arisen, and here in their mother's arms, searching for their mother's milk, all sorrow is forgotten. Now, in your experience as mothers, you have, some, many of you have experienced this in your own selves. The scientists have studied this. There is a massive hormonal change in a mother's body. Once the baby is born, all the endorphins go through the roof. Christ is describing this from his outside perspective, but scientists have confirmed this through the study of the hormones. I'll tell you a funny anecdote about this. When one of my children was born, I think it was Amy Lou, Mandy had a hard labor. Very hard labor. And we were up all night. I was trying to be a good husband and do the good husband thing, and finally the baby is born. And she's on cloud nine. She she walks with the baby to the bed. She's excited and chipper and joyful. And I'm dead as a doornail. I didn't get the hormone boost that she did. But she got a massive hormone boost when that baby was born. That's what Christ is describing here. When a woman is in labor, the child is born. And all sorrow is forgotten. This is the emphasis of Christ's description here. Right in the middle of the verse, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being is born. This is what the resurrection will produce. This is what the resurrection does produce sorrow transformed into joy. Now, let me just say this the illustration of a woman giving birth is a metaphor. Don't push the metaphor too far. He's just describing sorrow transformed into joy. Likewise with the resurrection, our spiritual sorrows are transformed into joy by the power of God in the resurrection. This is what the resurrection will produce. You have sorrow in your life. We all have sorrow in our lives. You have scars that you carry from your own sins and the sins of others. But when you are resurrected, all of that will be forgotten. It's hard to conceive, isn't it? Because our most powerful memories are our most painful memories. And it's hard to conceive, I'm not going to remember these things? What could possibly compensate for the sorrows I've endured in this life? Resurrection from the dead. The joy of the Lord through the resurrection it will wipe away every tear not only that you won't cry in heaven but you will forget that you ever cried when you are resurrected and you will not be able to resist it just like a mother when her hour comes there's no stopping the train it's time It's happening. We're doing this. Likewise with the resurrection. No one will be able to resist it. John chapter 11. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes right out of the grave. Notice what he says now in verse 22. He says, for joy that a uh, a man was born in the world. He says, therefore, now he makes the connection for us. Therefore, now you have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Notice he says that your heart will rejoice. This will be a joy that irresistibly bubbles up from within. That is, that is irresistibly coming up from the deepest part of who we are. When we see Christ, our hearts will rejoice. Consider two examples of this. Turn to uh, Genesis seventeen. Maybe my second most favorite verse in the book of Genesis. Genesis seventeen, verse fifteen and nineteen. Genesis seventeen. God is me- is renewing his covenant with Abraham. Then in verse 15, God says to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Now remember what who Sarah was. She's an old lady. She's past the time of childbearing. Abraham is an old man. He's past the time of childbearing. Chasing toddlers. These are both old people. And God makes this promise to them. The promise he makes to Abraham and Sarai is a type of resurrection. Life from the dead womb and the dead body of Abraham. Now he makes this promise to Abraham and notice what Abraham does. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham said, God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you will call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Why is Abraham laughing? He's laughing in an overwhelming sense of God's power and goodness to him. He's not mocking God here. He, he's laughing at the impossibility, the irrationality of what God has promised to him. Sarah's gonna bear the child, and Abraham is just filled with joy, like this is impossible. And God says, With me, all things are possible. That's why Isaac is called Isaac. His name means laughter in Hebrew, his name means joy in Hebrew. But more to the point, look at Luke 24. Luke 24, verses 36 through 41. Sir, 36, uh, Luke 24: 36 through41. this is one of the fulfillments of what Christ has just told the disciples. The disciples are discussing all these things. They've heard reports of the resurrection. And now as they said these things, Jesus stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. Remember in John 14, Christ tells the disciples, my peace I leave to you. Farewell, I will see you later. Now on the other side of the grave, he comes to them and says, greetings, peace to you. I'm back. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they'd seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, but while they still did not believe, for joy. And marveled, he said to them, Do you have any food? Notice the reason they don't believe. The reason they don't believe is because they are witnessing something beyond their comprehension. For the first time in their experience, a man that we saw die, a man that we saw buried, is standing in front of us. What can this be but the power of God? That is how sorrow is turned into joy. Through the power of God. Of the resurrection. Through the resurrection. Of Christ. John 16. He, he, as we conclude this. He says it will be a joy that no one can take from you. For no one. Will have power. Over you. The joy of the world. Ends with the grave. Wealth. Health. Popularity. Whatever it is. It all ends with the grave. You die, your joy dies. The joy of the Christian never ends. Because Christ has ended the power of the grave. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God of resurrections. He is the God of resurrection. There is a reason that all throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, it is uniquely the power of the resurrection that God loves to exercise. Because he is the only one that can do that. He's the only one that can bring life from death. You serve the God of resurrections. You serve the God who brought Jesus Christ up from the dead. There is therefore nothing that he can't do for you. There is nothing of what he has promised that he is not able to bring into your life. It is his delight to show forth his almighty power and undeserved grace to his people by raising them from the dead and delivering them from the sorrows of death. This is the source of Christian joy, not our comfortable circumstances, but in the power of God, even in the worst of circumstances. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great power that you've shown to us. We thank you for the power that you wrought in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to put our hope only in that power. Help us to obey your word and to walk in your ways that you might manifest yourself to us along with your Son. And we pray that as we experience sorrow in this life, you would cause us to also experience the joy of the resurrection and the joy of your salvation, which is the joy that no one can take from us. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.